Good morning, Megan Doherty here from Build Up. Uh, we just wrapped up the NAOP annual forecast and we've got a great panel to continue that discussion. So let's meet them. Kelly, can we start with you? Hi, my name's Kelly Whitman. I'm on the investment research team at PGM Real Estate Investments. Hi, Ben Coffin with JLL. I work in uh, Cambridge and Life Science Markets in Greater Boston. I'm Kristen Blount from Colliers International, and I work in the downtown market advising tenants and landlords in leasing office space. This is Rick Schuwark. I'm the executive managing director with Newmark Knight Frank, and I'm part of the industrial practice group. Hi, Rob Byrne, managing director with Cushman and Wakefield, and I focus on the suburban and inner suburban leasing market in greater Boston. Now I'm actually going to turn the conversation over to Tamara Small, CEO of NAOP Massachusetts, who was the moderator of the panel. Tamara? Thanks, Megan. So it was a great discussion today, and there were clearly a few themes that came out of the conversation. I think when we have this event, the NAOP SIR annual forecast, we're always looking for that crystal ball about you know what are what's going to happen in 2020, what are some trends we see. And one of the key themes we definitely heard today was it's all about talent, and that's affecting so many uh, location decisions. So who wants to take the lead on that? Maybe, Kristen, you can tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the market? So I think uh, from a real estate perspective, we're seeing tenants use space differently to react to the need to retain and attract talent. It used to be that space was really just a cost center. And the whole idea was, let's get as many bodies as we can in this space. Let's not put a lot of thought into what it means to create a productive work environment. But that's changed. Tenants are locating places, but also, more importantly, building their spaces out and expecting to have amenities within buildings that actually satisfy the needs of this uh, incoming talent. And how are we seeing this in the suburban market? Well, I talked about it a little bit in my presentation, but the two categories pertaining to the talent war is both the hiring and the retention. Companies need to be able to have the access to the labor pool in order to hire. So they're not going to be able to hire someone who doesn't feel like they can get to where that company is located. Then they need the amenities, the culture, the curb appeal, everything that goes along with the real estate decision that Kristen touched on to retain the, ta- the, the talent once they're able to hire. So they're, they're equally important. Um, I think we're, as a broker, we're involved towards the front, and the first decision is where can we access the labor pools and how will they get to where we're considering relocating, and then it transfers into now we need to create the environment that we think our company uh, wants to project and we think will help retain that talent. Yeah, I think in, in Cambridge and the inner suburban you know, lab markets, um, you know, these groups are competing with the big pharmaceutical companies who have kind of endless resources. So they are using their space differently. Um, you're seeing a lot more you know, large kitchens right off reception, um, game rooms, beer on tap, uh, ice brew coffee. You, know, you see all these different things. And I think you know, really that's going to continue. Um, but location-wise, it is important. And, and some groups just won't leave Kendall Square. You know, there's certain there's certain companies that just they they it's they're agnostic to, to moving, um, but I think a lot of groups are, are going to have to. And, and what happens, especially with younger companies, is you try to stay in Kendall Square and you miss out on a deal or two, and then you say, okay, where can I go where I can still 
attract this talent. And, and it is going to spread. It, it can't just be Rhett and Kendall. It, it will be in the Somerville Seaport is obviously an established life science sector now. Watertown has been for, for a long time is, is growing quickly. So, but I think, you know, locationally, obviously Rob mentions that in the suburbs. And, um, you know, you know, lastly, for, for office users in, in Kendall, it's a, it's a lot less sticky in Kendall Square just because you can go to downtown, you can go to the inner suburbs, and there's a, a larger portfolio of it, whereas Lab is still very specialized in, in a smaller market. So um, I think there's less, there's more flight in, in, uh, in office. I think another thing we heard about today was this concept of the peripheral powerhouses. So those neighborhoods outside of Boston and Cambridge. Uh, ben had mentioned uh, places like Alewife we're seeing, places like Alston, uh, Somerville, Seaport. Who wants to talk a little bit about looking ahead into 2020? What do we see for some of these peripheral powerhouses um, in terms of uses and demand? So uh, in my presentation, I talked about four elements that we feel like are needed in order for the peripheral market to become a peripheral powerhouse. One of them is access to a 24-hour residential community. So you don't want to be working someplace where you get out of your car um, or you get out and go to your car at night and there's a possibility that your safety is compromised. An existing amenity base, so the ability to get groceries, to pick up a bottle of wine on your way home, that type of thing. Community services like healthcare, fire and police, which is are sort of a given, but if you think about some of these peripheral markets, they're still lacking in healthcare options in places where somebody, you know, if they trip and fall, can go get a stitch or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then access to public transportation. And in 2020, we will see this play out in, at least from a Boston standpoint, um, in certain markets like Dorchester, uh, the Beat and the uh, Morrissey Boulevard corridor, the Beat and the uh, Bay State uh, Expo Center, that's right on the red line. There's a grocery store there. So you can see the elements of it, maybe not an established residential community right there, but all the other sort of elements that we're seeing in the to make them peripheral powerhouses are existing in that place. Uh, Dorchester Avenue and Southie. I mean, obviously, very vibrant residential community, lots of amenities. AEW and National Development's project there should take off in 2020, and um, and we we think that that will be a winner. So those are at least from our perspective some of the key elements that we're seeing. I totally agree with Kristen on all those elements, and I think if you look at the actual uh, developments of scale, so any sizable inter-suburban development going on in in inter-suburban to me is almost anything other than cbd seaport and in cambridge so it's watertown it's dorchester uh it's it's anything out of that that true cbd core uh, all these projects uh, basically have some level of mixed use component to them everyone and there's not just a office building going up here or a lab building going up there if there is, it's just one developer who's doing it in conjunction with other developers in that same block or neighborhood who are building. There, there is a residential project within a block, I guarantee you. There is a potential office or lab project within a block. There, the components are all there, even if it's not all under the same master plan. All right, Rick. You finally, you know, you're so happy that industrial is finally cool. The time has come for industrial. Do you want to talk a little bit about where you're seeing the market heading, urban versus 128 versus 495? Sure. First of all, the answer is all over. Um, urban, again, we touched on it in the overview. 
the problem with the Boston urban industrial market is that a lot of the product is going away. So the next best thing is lower 128, getting out to 95, because you have these companies that have been in Boston that own or lease. If their lease is running out, then their ownership might sell the building to redevelop it. Or it's an owner-occupied building that owns it and they know it's not the highest and best use, so they want to sell, but yet they still need to operate and be as close to the city as possible. So the urban people want to be in Boston. They want to be in the urban market, but it's a matter of finding a good product and b if you find the good product i mean rents 15 uh, 5 10 years ago for a good industrial product in urban was probably 10 11 dollars now we're probably seeing low 20s triple net so not only is it a challenge to find the product in boston it's also well how am i going to pay for the afford the rent so again next best thing is down the lower 28 and then from there, lower 28, 128, the tenants are on lower 128, who were paying 5 $6 a square foot five years ago and now paying 8 to $9 a square foot a square foot. So then from there, 128, now it's just getting pushed out to 495 And then as this thing, as this grows and as the, the demand becomes more and more for bigger warehouse box real estate, high, high bay distribution, 495 no longer has the property or land to, to accommodate that. So from there, 495, the next best ring is Route 2, 190, 146, Worcester, Falk, Falk River, and New Bedford. Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's, I mean, this is really, it's a 2020 story, but it's a 2020s story, I believe, as well, about what kind of industrial demand we're expecting to see um, when you have the rise of, Certainly Amazon kind of leads everybody else by the nose, uh, <laughs> kicking and screaming into, you know, they did Amazon Prime, free delivery, two days, then it was one day, now it's same day or an hour, and basically other retailers are forced to, to kind of come along with that, uh, which is creating a tremendous amount of, of pressure, both in terms of customer expectations of how fast you're going to get a pair of shoes mm -hmm. delivered to your house, um, means that you have to have any kind of retailer or 3PL has to have access within, you know, basically an hour of the city center. So when we're talking about last mile, it's not literally a mile, but it could be, you know, basically an hour's drive into the city center so that they can make multiple runs in and out of the population center, which we'll call urban Boston inside 128, that they can make multiple runs a day to restock, get out, and so forth. So it kind of limits feasibly where, where um, industrial tenants can locate. I think you know, kind of the 495 corridor Worcester area is, is probably a, a good area because not only that, you can get in and out of Boston, but you can also deliver up to, say, Providence within an hour or maybe uh, southern New Hampshire within an hour as well. So it's how can you be nimble and flexible um, and in increasingly industrial users and retailers themselves are willing to pay more uh, than they would in the past. The real estate has actually been a pretty small share of their overall cost center for this. It's more about the driver's time and it's about the transport cost and so forth. So that's where they're really getting hit. So they'll spend more on the real estate if they can minimize those other costs of transportation, delivery and so forth and be able to make multiple runs a day. So it's worth it. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of that, those rent increases to such high levels that would have been unthinkable five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. Right. And again, the, the future of what we hear, and Kelly, you might hear the same thing of the world of retail is, you know, these big box users, for example, Best Buy, mm -hmm. um, obviously they're a big box retailer and uh, they were, they're in about 240,000 square feet, but yet they're in the market for three, four, mm -hmm. 500,000 square feet because they need to have more product that can go direct ship to the actual consumer. 
Uh, I've also heard the future of retail is, let's call it for apparel, um, as opposed to a big retail store, it's going to be a small, more showroom type facility, touch, feel, every color, every size, go in, try it on. When you're in the store, you actually order it. Mm -hmm. So the hopes is by the time you get home from shopping or whatever you're doing, it's going to be on your doorstep. So uh, that obviously speaks for itself in the sense that you don't need a big retail space square footage wise to do that. You need basically a 1,500, 2,000 square foot showroom that has every color, size and make. Someone could try it on, look at it in the mirror, try it on, spend the day, order it, and then by the time they get home, the box is on their, on their front step. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely something we're seeing. I think retailers are frankly behind the curve by and large. I think what you're describing is the kind of bonobos model, which is one of those e-tailers or digitally native retailers that have, have opened up shops. Um, and it's changing consumer expectations. Now you expect, you don't necessarily to expect to go to the store and walk out with something the same day, but you expect to have it within a day. So you're more likely to feel better being able to go to a store. I can try it on. I know the size, color, fit. This is what I need. Great. And it can show up at my house in a day as opposed to going to the store and, okay, well, they don't have my size or they don't have it in this color. You're actually be more disappointed. So it's about getting that instant gratification um, and, and quick delivery. So it's really changing the way retailers are thinking about how they operate their stores, how they operate their supply chains as well. Um, so I think that's going to have, you know, that's going to unfold certainly in the next year, but but over the long run as well. Right, and I think even longer term, and, and Kelly, you're obviously the easiest person to go back and forth on this with is, we've also heard the expression return logistics, because right now, yeah. for example, my wife will order three pairs of shoes, I'll come in and pass out, and she goes, don't worry, two of them are going back. So it's it's a matter of, now it's the return logistics, because it's now you have to put them back someplace for to warehouse that. Right, so. can you buy that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> By the um, way, I can't shop in stores with being 6'8". So I, I return a lot of but, stuff. I can't even go to a, uh, a retailer. So my, but but listen, my, my wife finally realizes what I do after all these years. And I, I told her I'll never get upset when I see an Amazon box on the doorstep. Because that means it's coming from a warehouse and it's coming from a <laughs> Keep it in the family. Changes the perspective. Uh, no, reverse logistics is a huge factor. Um, in fact, I'm sure many people have had the experience where you go to send it back and they're like, never mind, just keep it. Because it's actually more expensive to, to return it. So... Um, or, you know, I understand your wife is sending back three of the four pairs. I intend to send back a lot of stuff that I perhaps don't end up doing. Um, but you're seeing a lot of the retailers respond to that as well. Kohl's, I think, is accepting Amazon packages where you can return it to them instead of having to fill out the whole form and arrange it with the UPS driver. Family Dollar, I think, is accepting FedEx. It's a FedEx delivery point as well. So you're seeing these partnerships amongst retailers with you know, trying to embrace the e-commerce and benefit from the foot traffic because that's what really matters is uh, that halo effect of buying online, either going into the store and then buying online later um, is real. And then the also the effect of buying online, taking it back into the store, you've returned something, but you pick up a few other things while you're there. So it really is all about omni-channel. Uh, and I think a lot of the existing supply chains for retailers aren't set up for that, um, but they're adapting because they recognize that's where the value is. So it's it's not either or, it's both and uh, from the retail and, and industrial um, landscape, for sure. Right, and I think that the, again, you know, the big question is, well, what happens when the market slows and the economy slows? Well, yes, it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But I think the way we act as humans is we're not going to go back on the way we shop or expect to get our product or get it to the end user. I mean, I remember growing up, my mother used to go to Marshall's and order something on layaway. I was like, what is layaway? It's like, well, you order from the store and it'll get to your house in seven to 10 days. 
And that's when there was the big distribution center in the middle of the country, and it could just take its time. We're not, the market's going to slow, the economy's going to slow, but as humans, we're not going to go backwards and say, oh, we'll go back there. We want our product, or whatever it may be, whether it's paper towels or our shoes or a shirt, we want it as soon as possible. I, I, uh, sorry, just one point on that. I often uh, say in meetings when we're talking about that industrial velocity and more so on the urban infill, which is where I think Rick uh, and my world collide sometimes. Um, you know, I pick up my iPhone and whether it's your iPhone or your Samsung and you ask everybody at the table, if you think your phone is going to change, if you think your kids are going to be doing something different, if you think that technology is going to change, you might have an argument, but if that's where you're going from now on to purchase more and more and your kids are only going to do it, why would there be an expectation for a major slowdown in the need for that logistics network and infill industrial and whether you call it last mile or last touch, it's going to be there. I think the one thing to think about is the cost. Again, I'll get to how expensive it is and Amazon's willing to eat a lot of that cost, whereas nobody else is doing, you know, so nobody's profitable at doing it, right? Uh, this definitely comes into mind with online grocery. Um, so I think the pressure is definitely there because tenant uh, consumer expectations are set for that. Um, at some point, the costs of this, they're going to have to bear more of the costs somehow. Um, whether it's people don't want to pay a delivery fee, so does it get baked into the pricing and so forth. At the same time, they're under tremendous, tremendous pricing pressure right now, particularly as Amazon is willing to do this at a loss, right? So what might happen when there's a slowdown is it kind of relieves that pressure on retailers more broadly and allows them to kind of rationalize what they're doing. Because uh, they're, what they're going to do is reduce their costs and find efficiencies, and they have been, um, but they've been playing catch. As soon as they figure it out two-day and how to do that, d digest those costs, Amazon goes to one day. As soon as they figure out one day, it's next, you know, same day. So Drones, Kelly, drones. I know drones. <laughs> drones, oh exactly. God. So the, the, the truth will be somewhere in the middle for sure, but I think, um, you know, if there is some sort of slowdown, you're right, the trend doesn't stop, but hopefully Hopefully it gives uh, retailers and logistics providers a little bit of breathing room or at least a little more breathing room. Megan Doherty here from BuildUp. Now a quick word from our sponsors. For 25 years, Moggle Architects has been shaping exceptional spaces and creating environments for innovation and growth. Their designs come to life in millions of square feet of commercial real estate throughout Massachusetts and New England for a wide range of industries, including technology, life sciences, healthcare, industrial, multifamily, mixed use, hospitality, and custom residential. For more information, go to mogul.com. That's M-A-G-U-E-L.com. Welcome back to The Big Dig, a podcast from Build Up and NAOP. I know we're, we're sort of going down yeah. a rabbit hole with some of this stuff, but I, I just have a quick question uh, for you, Kelly, and maybe for Rick, and that is that that uh, the third largest tenant in Boston right now is actually Wayfair. And um, you just mentioned, Kelly, that the shipping is something that's done at a loss mm -hmm. for Amazon. If Wayfair is shipping couches and dressers and <laughs> things, large items, and the prices that are being charged, how does that model work and what do you think that means in terms of their occupancy in Boston? This is a, actually could be a very big question because uh, <laughs> a large part of Wayfair's business model is also based on China trade. So I wonder mm -hmm. how cheap their furniture can be given some of the trade pressures and do they need to reassess their supply pipeline and supply chain rather. So the big issues there. Honestly, what I think is going to happen, and I, I wonder, and I don't know when this happens, we work, and, and perhaps Wayfair, I'm not sure who their investors are, we're basically subsidized by SoftBank. Um, so we've got, you know, Chinese venture capital and Japanese venture capital, you know, helping to bear the cost of, of my new armchair, which is great, um, but probably not lasting. So at some point, uh, when investors 
when that mood change, because venture capital is a confidence game in a way, uh, if that confidence abates for whatever reason or there's a broader market correction, they'll pull in the reins and that risk off behavior um, will will possibly cause some problems there. The business plan didn't add up. You could, How does WeWork make money? Um, became a big question. And then the valuation started to dip as a result. And we've seen this also with other IPOs such as Uber or Lyft and so forth, um, where the hype and the valuation that was basically fueling a lot of this market share growth and and unprofitable business, you know, current operating practices, um, that, that tide goes out. Right now it hasn't. Um, that's something we're watching very closely on who's talking about the venture capital and, and so forth that comes in. So that's been really subsidizing a lot of this. Yeah, I, I agree totally. And especially for tech, I mean, for, for life science, I mean, it, it, they're, they're, they're developing a product or mm-hmm. a group of product or a platform. It's so different. it's a little more finite, uh, but I totally agree with with the tech companies. I, I can't get into the dollars and cents of the supply of the furniture and but I can tell you for their demand in this market, I know they're in roughly 100,000 square feet in Westboro. They have been in the market for the past two to three years um, off and on, which might have something to do with the trade war. But they are, what we, what we know or hear is that they're close to doing another 120,000 square feet in the market. So speaking of WeWork, there's been a lot of talk about co-working. Is WeWork... Uh, the future for other co-working uh, businesses, or are we going to see, how is it going to shift? And also, how is the entire WeWork and co-working movement affected tenant expectations? Kelly, you mentioned a little bit about this in your presentation. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this. WeWork is sort of like Amazon in this case, where they they, they were able to operate at a loss, <laughs> and but really drive tenant expectations for everybody else, and c- customer expectations, and so forth. Uh, so what we're seeing is, I think an opportunity um, over the long run, which is recognizing that tenants in the market really do have higher expectations for what their experience is at work. So we talk a lot about experiential retail. I, I refer to it as experiential office, right? It's not just enough to have you know four walls and, and a roof and just hand the keys over and maybe have some people put some cubes in. You really need to have um, more dynamic high design, um, high amenitization, better food and so forth, options gyms, fitness centers can't just be a couple barbells anymore. You really need to have um, thoughtful, a thoughtful approach to how you're building out your office. Um, and tenants are willing to pay for that. That is something I think that um, that's important to note. We work may ebb and, you know, may, may pull back a bit, but what you're seeing is uh, landlords themselves and owners taking on some of this role and trying to take the good parts out of it and the parts that work and, and do add value and do it themselves. So you see a lot of uh, in investment houses um, either partnering with companies such as Industrious that are doing this, um, but more aligned with landlords, or building their own branded models so that you have a, a specific experience when you go to lease from this landlord, you're getting a, a whole experience. So they're, they're they're trying to incorporate that that way to add value, which is going to be it's going to be more about more than just location and asset. It's also going to be operator is going to be a key component in driving office value uh, over the over the long run, I believe. So for those listeners who were not able to be at today. Today's event. Could all of you go around and give a 15-second overview of your presentation and what you predict for your market uh, in the year 2020? 15 seconds. All right, we can do it. <laughs> Maybe we'll start. Kelly, you want to give a kind of a quick synopsis of? Uh, we'll give you. A you minute. can edit it to 15 <laughs> yeah, seconds. Yeah, we, yes. this is. I love this. This is the. <laughs> oh boy. Right. Now, let's put it this way. So we're 10 years into an economic expansion. 
Um, it is late in the cycle, so it's more competitive, certainly, to do deals, and the markets are, are we have to work a little bit harder, for sure. Um, some of the main pressures that we're seeing, um, war for talent and so forth, I think is, is definitely going to continue because unemployment rate is quite low, which is typical late in the cycle. Uh, labor force growth is slowing, so I think that's not just a 2020 issue, it's a 2020s issue. Um, right now, I don't think it's hard to find anything specific on the horizon that could cause things in 2020 to be different. I believe the poll question, most people expect 2020 to look a lot like 2019, which frankly looks a lot like 2018. And frankly, the past eight to nine years, we've had a large period of relative stability, um, which not too hot, not too cold, which seems like a good thing. Uh, there are certainly risks on the horizon, as there are all the time. We're monitoring those, but for the most part, expect a continued balanced but fairly healthy outlook for 2020. Um, steady as she goes. All right. In uh, in Cambridge, I'll, you know, I, obviously we're at record low vacancy and record rents for both office and lab. I think that will continue. Um, tenants will be pushed to for, uh, pushed out to, uh, to other markets. Uh, I think if you build a speculative lab building um, in the inner suburban kind of ring, you'll be rewarded handsomely. Um, and I think uh, the cluster is going to continue to grow, which I think is a good thing for the overall economy in that, you know, it doesn't need to be Seaport, Kendall, Somerville, Alston, Watertown. It should just be you know, Eastern Massachusetts, really. When you look at other regions, Research Triangle, San Diego, San Francisco, things are much more spread out. We have a density here that is really unique. Um, and I think we have a parochial view as well because we're all from here and grew up here. So uh, I think it's going to continue to spread in the in 2020 and the 20s, really. Uh, from a Boston perspective, uh, 2019 was actually a year of record rent growth, uh, record demand in the market with both the number of tenants and the square footage. So 2020, we think, ha will have the same positive growth, however, probably not at, this, at the exponential rate that we saw in 2019. That being said, we think we will reach uh, $100 rents plus in the financial district, and this is brave and bold of me, kind of, to say this, so don't hold me to this, anyone that's listening to this. Um, and I think I agree with Ben that we are going to see the real development of some clusters outside of the urban core that are still in the hub. So for, for industrial, more of the same. Again, it'll be urban industrial and then everything migrating northwest, south. We'll see everything get pushed out further to the west for bigger box industrial uh, distribution type players. Vacancies will drop, rents will rise. Um, the one thing I did not touch on in my presentation was spec development. Uh, we had two successful projects in 2019 with Clarion and Campanelli in Bellingham, 427,000 square feet going on spec, and they're both leased. We had uh, GFI build 300,000 square feet in Franklin. Almost at the same time, that building is leased to Dade Paper. Uh, and then moving forward, we see, give or take, five or six new spec developments of total about 2.5 million square feet within the greater Boston market, which we haven't seen spec development like this ever since, since I've been in the, since 2000. So. So my summary for the suburbs would be the story of talent. And that really is what's going on in our market. It's how do you get it? How do you retain it? Um, we have experienced a fair amount of corporate consolidations, and we have been fighting the urban migration in the suburban market for some time. Uh, so because of those still to come, I can't expect um, 
significant net new absorption, I think, moving forward into um, 2020 and 2021. But the leasing demand is there, and especially for well-located assets with the right amenity base and the right connectivity, uh, I think you can expect to see rent appreciation in those markets in those assets that are checking the boxes for the modern occupier in the suburban market. All right. Well, thank you guys all very much for joining us on The Big Dig. And Kristen, I know you said you don't want to, you know, necessarily be held to these predictions, but I think we'll transcribe all this and, you know, look back at it next year. And I'm guessing you all will be correct. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.